3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yay. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Good morning, Inez. Good morning. Uh... If you haven't already noticed, yes, we are back live in the studio. You're not hearing a little pre-recorded introduction, even though our summer programming was great. And remember, you can always go back and listen to those special curated themed shows at 3cr.org.au forward slash Thursday dash breakfast. Um, but yeah, how are you feeling back in uh, back in the saddle? Back in the saddle. I'm uh, riding the horse of stability. <laughs> Um, I finished my degree, and now I think I felt what sleeping feels like for the first time maybe ever in my life. That's amazing. And I love so that. Yeah, I also uh, experienced some solid sleeping. Uh, have been trying to resist resting for a very long time, but did it, and then was like, oh, no, it's actually really good. Mm. This is actually... You know what? I actually I rate this very highly. I like I like resting now. Am I going to do it voluntarily? No. So, um, but if it is forced upon me, I'll do it and I'll enjoy it. Apparently, yes. I fell asleep four nights in a row on time. Woke up on time. I feel like Amazing. I just need to. I need so many gold stars. I'm ready. So efficient. Mm. Uh, efficient in terms of paying attention to your own body clock. Yes. Um, we have. A pretty interesting show for you today. Um, some very important discussions coming up. So, Inez, do you want to take it away with your interviews? Yes. So first we'll hear from Kiskov, who is the Executive Director of the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimization and Ad- Advocacy for Karma, which is the alcohol, tobacco and other drug consumer organization for the Australian Capital Territory. And he joins us today for an update on Australia's first field fixed pills testing site and drug testing service that launched in July 2022, which is CanTest Health and Drug Checking Service. So we'll chat about what we've learned from the delivering this service so far, which should be really exciting. Yeah. And um, listeners might remember that we caught up with Chris uh, last year, right when the service had launched. So it'll be really interesting to get an update of how, how they've been going. Absolutely. And then we will hear from Jill Stark, who is an award-winning journalist, author and mental health advocate with a career spanning more than two decades in UK and Australia. She spent 10 years on staff at The Age covering health and social affairs, and she now works as a freelance journalist, speechwriter, media consultant, content creator and public speaker. And she joins us today to speak about the updated edition of her book, High Sobriety, which was longlisted for the Walkley Book Award and shortlisted for the Kibble Literary Awards. Jill chats to us today about her struggle to become a moderate drinker, the crappling anxiety that led her to quit alcohol for good, the pandemic and the ever-evolving journey of self-discovery sobriety has taken on. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting topic to cover as well, considering how a lot of people are coming back out into the world after being, uh, you know, in lockdowns for ages. And I know uh, a lot of people, um, 
I guess, experiences and behaviors around alcohol consumption have changed, some with an increase in consumption and some who have just sort of gone cold turkey over the period. So it'll be really interesting to hear that perspective. Um, and finally, we're going to be joined by Nura Mansour, who is a community organizing and advocacy lead with the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, or APAN. And Nura joins us to talk about APAN's upcoming Palestine Solidarity Conference, which is going to be running from the 27th to the 29th of January, so next Friday to Sunday. And you can find out more and register attend. Uh, register to attend, sorry, at apan.org.au forward slash PSC. And just remember, uh, for 3CR listeners, or if you're listening for the first time today, for more coverage on Palestine on our station, don't forget, you can always catch the Palestine Remembered show on Saturdays from 9.30 to 10 a.m. And one of the co-hosts of that is Nasser Mashni, who is uh, also a member of APAN, one of the uh, executive of APAN. And so, yeah, I'm really keen to see how this conference goes because it'll be running right after Invasion Day. And of course, there's uh, an ongoing and really important conversation about uh, First Nations and Palestinian solidarity. So super keen to have this conversation. But uh, we might head to a community service announcement and come back to you with headlines. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.06 in the morning, and these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 19th of January. Listeners, please be advised that this headline contains mention of a First Nations person who has died. The Victorian government has this week confirmed it would not give police any new powers to arrest people for public drunkenness once the existing offense is decriminalized in November this year. Almost three decades ago, the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody found the law disproportionately affected First Nations people and recommended that it be abolished. Following the coronial inquest into the death in custody of Yorta Yorta woman Tanya Day in 2017, who was arrested for public drunkenness when she fell asleep on a train, the state government committed to repealing public drunkenness as a crime. But the implementation of a health-based response to replace the offence was delayed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. First Nations representatives have praised the decision not to replace the law with police move-on powers. Also in headlines this week, the Complaints Watchdog for the National Disability Insurance Scheme, or NDIS, has reported there have been more than 7,000 serious incidents in disability group homes in the last four years. The report, released this week, details that many of those incidents included injury, abuse, neglect, and hundreds of incidents involving unlawful physical or sexual contact. Reported incidents peaked last year when more than 800 complaints were made between October and December. The Commission confirmed it would introduce a new practice standard for group homes, including training aimed at improving staff culture. In response to the report, the federal government says there needs to be more focus on educating people with disabilities about their rights. 
Advocates have commended this statement, calling for structural and institutional reform that allows for more choice in care providers and for a culture of respect and accountability for people with disabilities. In other news, slow recovery from the floods in Western Australia earlier this month has left people stranded and sleeping on the streets of Broome, unable to get accommodation while they wait for safe access back to their homes. The, quote, worst flooding Western Australia has ever seen, end quote, caused widespread evacuations earlier this month and cut off a number of First Nations communities. People evacuated as a direct result of the flooding are receiving accommodation assistance, but those who travel prior to the flooding are now cut off from their homes are reportedly being excluded from those supports. The Western Australian government announced this week that recovery will take longer than expected, and some of those sleeping rough as a result of the floods have been told that it could be up to seven weeks before they can get home. And finally in headlines, Vic forests are reportedly logging in areas known to contain endangered species. Despite a court ruling late last year that banned the practice occurring without extensive surveys, locals to the wombat forest in Victoria were alerted to logging activity in December and again this week, and say that if Victoria Vic Forest think they can conduct this illegal operation under the radar, they are wrong. The community notified the Office of the Conservative General, who are assigned to oversee Vic Forest, but have received no response as of earlier this week. These have been the new headlines for Thursday the 19th of January. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. Just want to chime in um, to... Uh, call back to that first headline and, um, you know, send all of our solidarity and um, congratulations to the Day family who have been fighting so hard uh, to, to have this, to have public drunkenness decriminalized in the state and to implement that recommendation from the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Um, I can't commend enough the integrity of the Day family and the fight that they've put in. And the state has really been, you know, dragging its heels about this. Um, but hopefully this is one small measure that will, you know, undercut the the massive overreach of police powers into especially First Nations people's lives. Um, so, yeah, um, also recommend that folks uh, follow the Dajawa Foundation's work and uh, chip in if you can to keep that work going because it is so essential, um, the kinds of supports that they provide to First Nations families that are going through processes such as coronial inquests and fighting for justice for their loved ones. Um, but, yeah, it is... It's been a long time coming, and I'm, I'm glad that, that we've gotten to this point. Um, yeah, and maybe we will come back to you shortly with a little song. Did you miss 3CR's broadcast of the inaugural historic first Trans Pride March Melbourne on Sunday 13 November? Perhaps you want to break a binary and listen to it again. Well, either way, you can. It's now available for listening at 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March, Melbourne. Turn it up, feeling that beacon under me, keeping on it all night. Join in the historic occasion and support our trans and gender diverse communities here in Nam. 3CR Radical Radio, proudly supporting trans and gender diverse people as part of diversity in Nam. Oh, 3cr.org.au Trans Pride March Melbourne
And now we are going to a track by Bumpy, and it's called Hide and Seek.
Join 3CR from 9am to 4pm on Thursday the 26th of January for our annual Invasion Day broadcast. 3CR's First Nation presenters will be broadcasting live from the Stop the War Treaty Before Voice rally and march in Melbourne. We'll be bringing you black and deadly music, news and views from activists across the continent with a grassroots politics that you won't find anywhere else as we discuss genocide, sovereignty, treaty, pay the rent, death in custody, truth and justice, and the law of the land. So keep tuned to 3CR on Thursday, the 26th of January, 2023. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijoma Umbinyo Diaspora Blues What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30pm on 3CR Community Radio. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 718 in the morning and you just heard Hide and Seek by Bumpy. And now we're going to go into another track. This is Sugar Coated Lies by Ziggy Ramo and Alice Skye. Stepping out of shit you don't like Moonwalk away from the truth like Mike Sugar spike light a bed, it gets pathetic We desperate, we spend it reckless, I get it We getting lost in the message And you always talking shit when there's nothing to say And when I need you to show up, you get lost in the days Feeling trapped in a maze, I'm feeling so out of place Feeling like a young prince getting caught in the rain And you purple in the face when you holding your breath And you chasing that high, crashing down like a jet Turbulence, got a brother on the fence Tough defensive, full of fact And you dancing with two lefts You're my dog, I'm your vet And you got nothing left, I put you down Lately I've been dealing with my back against the ground Feeling like they're standing close and everything around Gotta fix some sugar and you never make a sound sweet If you don't fuck with yourself, I don't eat no sugar cause it's bad for my health. Keep that sweet, simple shit out my ears, damn it's poison. Dulling my senses and numbing out choices. You running around voiceless, you loyal to a foe. Spinning those lies, got you trapped in the vote. I'm told I'm cold, you sold your soul for gold. It's bold to shed your mold when your palm is a globe and I wouldn't stop if I coulda Blood sugar shoulda crashed when you feeding that trash When you falling that fast, man, that shit is a blur When I'm spilling this tea, damn, it's hard not to slur, yeah Dance around the truth like a tango Trying to unchain it like I'm Django Unicode kidding, I swear you never asked why Got you addicted to big little lies Sugar-coated lies, we don't wanna talk about it Such a sweet disguise, made of gonna dance around it 
And that was Sugar-Coated Lies by Ziggy Ramo and Alice Skye. A bit of a retroactive language warning, uh, but a great track nonetheless. Uh, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And uh, I know that Invasion Day is coming up next Thursday, but there's also going to be an important event in the next few days, and this is to commemorate Tana Minerweight and Malboy Hiner. Let's hear a bit more about that now. Join us at midday on Friday the 20th of January for the Tanaminawai and Morborhina commemoration at the corner of Franklin Street and Victoria Street in Melbourne at the Tanaminawai and Morborhina Monument. It's a two-hour ceremony, begins at midday. The first hour is broadcast live on Community Radio 3CR. We have a bevy of interesting guest speakers. At 1pm, we will walk silently to what we believe is their burial site in the Queen Victoria Markets. I encourage you to bring your children and friends to commemorate the hanging of Tanaminoe and Melbourne for actively resisting the colonisation process. See you there. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Wah carries the stories of our ancestors, forever watching over us and protecting us. Join me, Taldum Chogo Edwards, for Balamoir, a journey of stories, yarns and music about freedom and survival from 2pm to 3pm every Thursday afternoon on 3CR, 855 on your radio dial. As I walk alone on my dreaming track tonight I can hear the voices of my elders Their ancient sounds 
things echo in my mind To the beat of clapstick and the dancing you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. We've been having a bit of a cruisy one with a lot of music this morning, and we've got another track coming up for you. This is Real Love by Sleepy Tom and Nairi. <laughs> so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Community Radio 3CR.
And you've just heard Real Love by Sleepy Tom and Nairi. And that was a beautiful track to lead us into our next interview. So we'll be speaking now with Chris Goff, who is the Executive Director of the Canberra Alliance of Harm Minimization and Advocacy, or CAMA. And CAMA is the Alcohol, Tobacco and Other Drug Consumer Organization for the ACT. And he joins us today for an update on our previous interview in July when the site first launched uh, CanTest Health Drug Checking Service. And we will chat about what we've been learning from delivering this service in Canberra so far. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Chris. Uh, yeah, thanks, everybody. Well, th- yeah, thank you. I know that <laughs> this interview is um, on your holidays, so I really appreciate your time as well. And I think for our listeners who aren't familiar, could you tell us a little bit about what the fixed drug checking service in Canberra actually does? Yeah, sure. So it's a service that's right in the middle of town. It's uh, near the needle and syringe program and, and near all of the uh, all of the venues that people go out and, and party at. Um, so when you come in, you'll be greeted by somebody who has a lived experience of, of drug use uh, and kind of guided through what the service is going to um, going to entail. And essentially what that is is people can come in, um, essentially they, they'll have an idea about what the drug is that they've actually got in their possession and they hand over a small sample of it to um, to uh, one of our analysts and they'll put it through uh, one or possibly two machines Um They'll shine a light on it to look at uh, what the reflection what, what the reflection looks like, and they'll um, uh, essentially uh, measure that against what we know uh, the reflection sign of drugs uh, of known drugs is, uh, and then potentially put it through another machine, um, which will look at kind of giving us an idea of how pure it is. Uh, and so once you've kind of got an idea of, uh, you've, you've come in with an idea and now you actually know what the drug is and then, then we can take you through some information about uh, the best way to use that drug, the safest way to use that drug, um, but also some of if it comes up as something that's, that you're not looking for or you haven't actually decided to purchase, then, then we can tell you a little bit about the dangers that are involved in using this new drug. Uh, and, and then from there, obviously, there are other services available so naloxone is available. We'd like everybody to have naloxone out there if they're using drugs. So that's the drug that reverses opioid overdose. There's also a nurse on site and an AID practitioner who can talk to you a little bit about your health and well-being and refer you within the healthcare service if you would like that. Yeah, it's it's such an incredible service and it's so wonderful that it has been running since July and um, hopefully will run for much longer. Um, but also I wanted to ask... Do you know, uh, do you test all drugs or are there certain drugs that are kind of off the table or un- unable to be tested? Sure. So we can test most drugs, um, but there are a few which are tricky. So we can't, we can't test cannabis um, because we're shining a light on it and getting a, a refraction, essentially. Uh, cannabis just comes out as, as plant matter, essentially. So you actually have to isolate the, the drug in some way into a powder uh, or into some liquids. Some liquids are tricky, some some aren't. So, so look, we can test the majority of the powdered substances, things like that you might think of MDMA, heroin, methamphetamine, uh, and then some of the difficult ones, we can do stimulant, uh, sorry, we can do um, um, 
image uh, image enhancing drugs and steroids, but mm-hmm. it takes a while for us to do. We might actually have to send it away for a week or so. So, but that's a little bit tricky, and and you have to remember that you actually at this stage you actually have to come back um, to collect your results if we can't give you a result straight away. So, but the majority of drugs besides cannabis. Um, and some things uh, in oils um, we can test for. Okay, great. Um, I guess also in, since it's launched in July, what could you tell us what I think the you've learnt so far about delivering the service? You know, outside of people purely in a festival setting or outside of needle and syringe programs. Yeah, sure. So, so I think one of the big things that we've found is is we were a little bit apprehensive about whether people who injected drugs would want to come along and use the service. Uh, people who inject drugs, uh, you know, they're using people are using things like heroin and methamphetamine, and we'd really like to have those tested. We have tested some of them, but we'd like a lot more people from those communities to come through. Uh, for people who are partying and maybe going to a festival on the weekend, we've found that. Um, having the service before the festival has been really, really important for people, and we've actually extended the Cantest hours um, before the latest uh, festival spilled milk and were completely overrun with people who, who are obviously out there. They're looking forward to going to a festival. They've gone and they've purchased something to take at the festival, and they want to do their due diligence and make sure that they're going to have a good time and make sure that they get worded up about what's actually what they've got and uh, how they can, how they can uh, have the best time but, and also be as safe as they can. So, so we're really seeing people coming out of the woodwork and planning to come along and get their Drugs tested, which is a fantastic thing. I think there's a real kind of um, there's a feeling amongst the community that people who use drugs perhaps don't care about their health and well-being and don't plan and are quite chaotic. And I think that one of the things that Can Test has really been successful at is proving that the community of people who use drugs they really do care about their health and well-being. They want to be community members and they want to have access to this technology to be as safe as they can while they party. Yeah, it sounds like preparation and care for themselves and for the people around them. And that definitely does, you know, destigmatize a lot of the myths that people have about people that take drugs. Um, and what barriers are you also seeing, I guess, you know, for people who um, inject drugs or like methamphetamine? Uh, what barriers to help seeking do you currently see in the service that you'd like to improve on, I think, in the future? Yeah. So, look, I think the big one is the harms of criminalization of drug use, right? So, um, you know, people who use methamphetamine and heroin, I mean, look, everybody's different, but certainly, you know, I'm, I have lived experience of using heroin. And when you're using a drug like that, you, you really feel quite downtrodden, quite highly stigmatized and very, very cautious about what information you give people because it can have... Um, really serious and dire consequences for your health and well-being, to be honest with someone about your drug use. And so one of the good things with CanTest is we've set up this site where we're saying, okay, we know that these drugs are criminalized. We're doing something about that. In the meantime, come along. Uh, we're being open and honest and trying to start those conversations. And so the biggest drawback that we have at the moment is that drugs are illegal still. And, you know, it's a very difficult, it's also a very mixed message to send people to say, oh, listen, we know that your drugs are illegal, but come along and get them tested. 
Uh, and so we're in this kind of weird period where now people, uh, society in general, is 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 thinking that drug use is um, is uh, is a is a health issue, not a not a criminal issue. Um, but we haven't got to the coal phase, the actual legal changes that are needed to make those to make those changes to the law, so people can come forward. And so we're fighting that at Cantest, but obviously we need to do more in terms of addressing the harms of. Uh, the harms of drug criminalisation itself. Absolutely. I think also with, um, you know, going off what you've said about, you know, drug law reform, I know that scientists at uh, the Australian National University have detected uh, like a mysterious new recreational drug, which is not seen in Australia before, um, or toxicologically described anywhere else, and a drug which the scientists are labelling CANCET, which has, you know, similar chemical qualities to ketamine, but with a unique makeup. Um, are you able to tell us a little bit more about this? Uh, look, I can, I'm, not a, I'm not an analyst myself, but sure. I can tell you, tell you a little bit about it. Um, we are finding a whole range of different drugs substituted for ketamine, either substituted with no ketamine in the samples provided when the person thinks it's going to be ketamine, or with a number of with ketamine plus some of these drugs put in. Um, the the CANCET um, that was found uh, several times now is uh, is a catamone uh, and it's it's got quite it's got a longer half life so it means it lasts longer in your system it doesn't have such a euphoric effect as uh, as ketamine does um, and uh, and it can have some effects that are that aren't very good on your on your heart and your body. So the issue that we're seeing is that people, because we haven't got a white market, we've got a black market in drugs, and nobody knows what is being passed around in those marketplaces. We're finding all of these uh, substitutions, drugs that aren't ketamine, um, but somebody is put in a drug that they, you know, that does something similar. And so this obviously is really concerning because, you know, we don't have good data on these drugs. It, it seems to be quite widespread. So in the fifth month of CanTest, we had 12 ketamine samples, and of those, six weren't even ketamine. Um, they were these really weird drugs that, are, that, that people are using to substitute. And when you're using drugs, obviously it's a, it's a very profound effect on your, on your mind and you really do need to be in control of, you need to understand how long the effect is going to last for, you need to understand what the effect on your body is in order to be safe. And um, these new drugs that we're finding, we don't have that information uh, and so we, are, we, are, so we just at this stage are messaging some of those very broad things about making sure that you come and get it tested, uh, and then our, our analysts will give you, um, you know, what the actual effect of whatever has been substituted into your drugs are. And we find that in most cases, people, surprise, surprise, aren't wanting to take those drugs. About 60% of people who come in and they find that they've got something that they don't want, uh, throw those drugs out or say that they throw their drugs out. About 18% discard the sample and about 61% uh 
tell us that they are not going to use that drug. Um, so, look, it's it's almost like a it's it's not a good situation. Of course, what we would like is for people to be able to to access if they are going to use drugs to be able to access those drugs in a manner that's safe for them, that they know what they're getting. We're not there at the moment with our laws in Australia, and so we're in this position where we're describing these new drugs as we find them, and which is very exciting for the analysts and the chemists. Um, and for us, as peers and people who are members of the community of people who use drugs, we, we're really just looking at these drugs as they come in and making sure that we're making determinations about whether we send out what we call a red alert, which is an alert that goes out through the ACT uh, and through, through Australia in various networks and alerts people that this drug is on the streets and is being marketed. Um, as well as yellow alerts, which are kind of internal to the ACT and allow our systems to uh, allow places like Carnery, for example, um, to tell the community about what's actually going on in that black market. I hope that makes sense. No, absolutely it does. And it definitely is concerning that, you know, things are being sold um, as ketamine and more often than not, it's just not even close to what we think we're getting. Um, yes. And as you said, yeah, the you know, drug law reform laws are not really catching up to what is needed. And it does send a mixed message saying that, you know, come in here, get your drugs tested. But, um, yeah, you still have to, like, hide and feel a lot of uh, shame and it can it, – it's quite unsafe. Uh, I guess also in terms of people's behaviour, you're saying that, like, a lot of people will throw out their drugs or say that they will – could you tell us a little bit more about people's, like, reactions when they find out? Because I can imagine going to a service and, I don't know, feeling really anxious or feeling really excited to go somewhere and then you get told what, um, what's in your drugs and maybe you've paid for them or you, I don't know. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about what you're finding about people's, like, reactions? Yes, so you're right. Um, so I think the first part of uh, your question is, so we do, this is why we have a, a peer who guides people through the process because it is really, it can be, it can be really um, anxiety causing to go to a service. You're holding on to a little sample of something that you know is illegal. And so, so we, we really, we try and be non-judgmental. We welcome you um, at the door, make sure that you're comfortable, that you understand what's going to happen. Um, and then we take you through the process. When, when you find out, the thing is most people do have uh, a, good, a good idea of what they've got if they've got it from a source which is reliable. If they haven't, we often find people come in and, um, you know, we had, we had somebody a while ago who said, oh, they found something on a dance floor and they just wanted to know what it was. So in that case, they weren't particularly surprised to find out that it was, you know, something weird, one of these substitutions of ketamine. Um, but, you know, for those people who do have a uh, trusted kind of supply network and then they come up with something that uh, they find isn't what they paid for, I, I think there's a... So there is some frustration there, obviously, but but I think you know people come into our service and they realise that that it is a cutting edge service, mm. um, and that we actually don't have all of the answers for them. We're just trying to start those conversations. We have a lot of answers about the way that the drugs are going to interact with their body, but it really the 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 onus is all on the person who's coming in to to kind of be the clearinghouse for their own information and make their own decisions. So, you know, we haven't found a lot of people coming in and getting stroppy because the analyst has told them that their cocaine is, 
you know, sugar. Um, uh, you know, we found people really uh, obliging, really respectful and, and really responsible in terms of what they do when they have that negative, um, that negative result, you know. So, so, look, I've been really proud of the community coming in and embracing this service. Um, and, and actually, we find that a lot of people then go on and, and kind of spread that community through, through their community of friends, which has been really, really interesting to see. I think the other thing which will be really interesting to find out is we, we don't know what the effect of CAM tests will be on the drug markets in the ATT. And we have, they have seen in other parts of the world that, um, that, that when people have got their drugs tested in, in Europe, for example, they'll actually go back to their, to the person they got it from and have a conversation about it. Um, and in some parts of the world, we've seen that that's actually um, made them, the, the black market more stable and secure. Uh, something like a Google rating, yeah? Uh, so you go, now you've actually got a way of saying to the person who supplied it to you, hey, this isn't what I asked for. This could have been really dangerous to me and having some of those really important conversations and starting to put some of those decisions about what happens in the black market back on those suppliers. Now, again, that's not perfect, um, but it is creating that information in the community, which has been really interesting to see. And once again, go straight back to that really integral part of the project around showing that people who use drugs really care about their health and well-being and care about their friends and their community. Yeah, it's it's clearly such an invaluable service. And, yeah, what you've said about, um, yeah, like information sharing and word of mouth is something that is like from a... A macro standpoint is really interesting. I think also lastly, what hopes do you have for the future of the service and also how do you, you, you spoke a little bit about how it can contribute to drug law reform, but I guess what are your future hopes for it? Yeah, so look, we, we've got some uh, decriminalisation happening this year in October, which is really exciting and uh, we just found out that the trial will be extended until August this year, which is which is excellent. Um, but we'd like to see it continue, obviously, and be part of the and the treatment landscape in the ACT as we go forward. So, at the moment, Cantest is just a pilot. We'd like to see it um, maintained after August as a as an ongoing service. Uh, and we'd like to to keep on uh, doing what we're doing. We only operate for six hours a week at the moment. Is that enough? It's certainly not enough before a festival. We've seen that when there's a festival, we need to extend our opening hours, and so we need to do that again. Um, and 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 this is a, what what we call a low threshold service. So it's a threshold which it's a it's a service which you can go into, and it's not like a residential rehabilitation unit where you go there to become abstinent from drugs. These services you rock in, and you get some information, and you talk, and um, but you're not necessarily expected to change your behavior anyway. We give you advice, but it's up to you what you do. And so it's what we call a low threshold entry point, an easy entry point into the healthcare system. And we want CanTest to continue to be one of those 
uh, low threshold entry points into the system, which we're going to need when decriminalisation kicks off in October. So at this stage, we're really happy with the way that CanTest is going. Maybe a few more opening hours, certainly some more opening hours before big festivals. Um, we'd like eventually to do something in the ACT like DanceWise where we're actually training people um, who go to festivals to go to the festival and go there as life-preserving citizens and actually um, teach people harm reduction at festivals. We think that would be an excellent inclusion in sort of part of uh, part of CanTest's remit or if not with CanTest in a separate standalone kind of volunteer program or something. Look, there's so many ideas, I'm sorry, I'm just going nuts. But really, in essence, we want this to continue and we want people from across Australia and the other jurisdictions to look at what we're doing and see that it's 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 doable and it's achievable and it's having great results. We want this to be up and running in every state and territory in Australia um, because uh, it is a really useful service and we're, we're saving lives and that's that's what this game is all about. Absolutely. It's an Australian um, first, but hopefully, you know, it's not an Australian last. <laughs> uh, <Exactly. laughs> well, thanks so much, Chris, for your time. It's been an incredible interview. Um, and, you know, if you want to learn more, we'll have more in our show notes. But thank you for your time and I hope you have a good rest of your holiday. Thanks, yeah, thanks everybody. Take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. You've... Just listen to an interview with Chris Goff, who is the executive director of Karma, which is the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimization and Advocacy. And he joins us today for an update on Australia's first fill, fixed pill testing and drug checking service that launched in July. And we chatted about what we've learned from the service so far, drug law reform, and, you know, people who use drugs and their behavior. So definitely share that interview around. Very important. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Published or Not has been on air for over 20 years. And in that time, it's been hosted by Jan Goldsmith. Well, just recently, over the last seven years, I've been joined by David McLean. We'll be talking about text, discussing words and ideas. With local authors, authors from interstate, or sometimes even from other countries. You can stream it live or find it on your favourite podcast app. So join us... Every Thursday at 11.30 on 3CR. I've been working on my rear end, that's right. I'm going to change the ending. Go throw away my title and toss it in the train. And now we are going to another interview. Uh, you're hearing more of my voice, but we'll be listening to an interview with Jill Stark, who is an award-winning journalist, author and mental health advocate with a career spanning more than two decades in UK and Australia. She spent 10 years on staff at The Age, covering health and social affairs. She now works as a freelance journalist, speechwriter, media consultant and content creator and public speaker. And today we are speaking about the updated edition of her book, High Sobriety. Um, thanks so much for joining us here today, Jill. Good morning. Great to be here. Amazing. Thank you. Could you tell us a little bit about the book High Sobriety and why you wanted to update the 
for publication this year? Yeah, well, the question I've been asked the most since uh, the book came out 10 years ago is, what happened next? Mm -hmm. Um, So at the end of the book, the original book, I did go back to drinking after about 14 months, which was a disappointment to a lot of my readers who I think um, I discovered a lot of people had tied their relationship with alcohol to mine, which was a bit unsettling. But um, yeah, I did go back to sort of moderate mindful drinking and I thought that would be the way things would go. But like many people who come from a background of binge drinking, moderate drinking is is quite difficult to, to master in the long term. And I found that, yeah, old habit, habits crept back in. And my main reason for quitting the second time was really the anxiety. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate to that hangover anxiety you get in the morning after where you just feel absolutely dreadful. And I could no longer ignore the sort of correlation between the big dip in my mood and the, and my big nights out drinking. So, yeah, I decided to, to stop drinking in 2019, so almost three and a half years ago now. And, yeah, I, I decided to re-release the book with some updated chapters about what happened next because so much has changed in the 10 years since the book first came out for me and for the wider drinking culture. Absolutely. I guess also I wanted to ask with you know, people tying their relationship to drinking to yours. Did you find it, I guess, uncomfortable for being, I guess, say, like a poster person for sobriety? (laughs) Yeah, I I definitely unwittingly became the kind of poster girl for sobriety, and that was not something that I really expected because originally I had no intention to stop for a year. I I did it for three months was always my, my goal, and then I was enjoying it so much that I decided to do it for another three months. And it was at that point that I wrote a piece uh, for The Age where I was working at the time and I kind of outed myself as the binge drinking health reporter who was writing about alcohol during the week and then writing myself off at the weekends. And it was it, it was that article that led to a publisher offering me a book deal and saying, if you did this for a year, there would be a book in it. So I, I never... I mean, I guess I was kind of contractually obliged to not drink for 12 months and I never said that I was going to stop forever. Um, and I obviously learned a lot during that year, but I think uh, a lot of people felt disappointed that I had gone back to drinking. And, you know, people were very invested in my journey and people felt like my story was theirs. And a lot of people wanted to know if it was possible to go back to moderate drinking. And again, that's the question I still get asked to this day. And I think I think moderate drinking is hard for a lot of people because the very nature of the drug that we're ingesting is addictive. Um, alcohol is up there with cocaine and heroin as one of the most addictive, and, and nicotine is one of the most addictive drugs that we could use, um, except we don't really see it as that because it's so socially acceptable. Um, so, yeah, it's... it's. I never never professed to be the, the role model for the temperance movement. That certainly wasn't my intention. Um, but, yeah, people people often see a bit of themselves in the story that you're telling. No, of course. I, I I can't imagine what it must have been like to have your book contract be tied to your, like, such a personal thing, like your sobriety. <laughs> um, I can't imagine how uncomfortable that, that must have been. But thank you for sharing. Um, I guess also we know right now, I, I, particularly with young people, that there is, you know, so much bigger movement into sober curiosity. Like, people, young people are choosing like not to drink more often and they're also delaying the first time they drink which is a huge shift in a culture like Australia 
But I guess you've spoken a little bit about the cultural shifts, but what changes have you witnessed in yourself and the culture around you that either has uh, made sobriety either exciting or difficult? Like, have you had to change how you bonded socially? Um, I guess, could you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. I um, As you say, the, the Sober Curious movement is really being led by young people, which is an extraordinary shift from where we were in 2011 when I first took my year off drinking. <clears throat> you know, um, back then I was writing stories for the age about what, what health experts were calling the alcohol time bomb, and that was a generation of young people binge drinking to levels that were, were really problematic and, and injuring themselves and, and getting into all sorts of strife and landing up in hospital and having really dire consequences from that drinking. And now we've seen the complete reverse happen where young people, as you say, are are drinking less. Um, they're choosing not to drink at all or, or delaying the time that they have their first drink. Whereas people in my age group, sort of women in their 40s to 60s, that's the age bracket that we find are drinking more. Um, and so it's, a, it's been a real shift. And I think one of the reasons that there has been that change is that sobriety has almost had a, a sort of makeover. <laughs> um, back then, it was a really sad and lonely place to be as a sober person. There just, it just wasn't um, a lifestyle choice that was really embraced or that you could see anywhere. There wasn't any sober role models where you could look at people online and think, oh, they're, they're leading their best life. Um, I'd like to try that. Whereas now we have you know, a, a whole movement of influencers on TikTok and Instagram and other platforms who are kind of showing sobriety as a sexy, subversive, sort of almost an act of radical defiance where you're saying, well, I, I choose to to opt out of this cultural norm and do things differently because um, life can still be rich and rewarding and fulfilling without um, a drink in your hand. And of course, the other major shift that we've seen is this, this absolute stratospheric growth in the non-alcoholic drinks movement. There just wasn't anything like that on the market back then 10 years ago, whereas now, you know, you have, we have a non-alcoholic bar here in Melbourne in Brunswick cases. We have um, we have non-alcoholic beers out selling standard beers in some bottle shops. Like, it's a, it's a real, really huge shift that is being led by young people who are demanding better options when they go out. Yeah, I mean, also touching on what has happened recently in our culture as well is you know the pandemic and you speak a little bit about this in your book but could you maybe explain or just yeah just shed light on what it must have felt like during lockdown because it was really intense here in Victoria and you know COVID is definitely not over but I'm sure lockdown presented you know a range of different challenges as well. Yeah, so when the pandemic hit, um, I had been sober at that point for about nine months. I stopped drinking in June 2019. So when February, March rolled around the next year and our whole world just were turned on their head, um, I really questioned at the beginning of that whether I would continue with my sobriety. You know, I didn't, it didn't last long, the questioning, because I realized that one of the, the main reasons I stopped drinking was to improve my mental health, and we were about to enter into one of the most challenging periods that many of us have ever dealt with. None of us could have prepared for what a global pandemic would mean. And I honestly don't think I would have survived six Melbourne lockdowns <laughs> had I been drinking, because we know that alcohol chips away at your resilience, it chips away at that 
sense of being able to cope with life's problems. Um, and you may feel like it takes the edge off, but the next morning those edges are sharper and they cut you deeper. So I, I found that not drinking was just was one of the main reasons that I was able to do quite well through lockdown. And we saw um, it was such a difficult period for so many people. And um, a lot of people really discovered the way that they drank because often people would think, well, I'm just a social drinker. And then all of a sudden our social outlets were taken away from us and people discovered, actually, no, I still need a drink. And we saw an increase in the number of people who were drinking in ways that um, to cope with stress. We saw uh, a tripling in calls to alcohol and drug helplines over that period. And we had an alcohol industry that very aggressively marketed the notion that if you we can hand, home deliver you our products and that will help you cope with lockdown. So that led to a lot of people questioning the way that they drink. And so in some ways, the pandemic really turbocharged the Sober Curious movement because it led to a lot of people really reflecting on the role of alcohol in their lives and wanting to make a change. Yep, and when... You were also like investigating the, not investigating, I mean, maybe it's investigation, but doing like research, um, to try and like, you know, you're speaking from your own experience, but you're also talking to experts in the field and other people who have been through, uh, similar experiences. You know, as a journalist, when you were doing like research for your book and meeting with different people, I guess what surprised you the most? Oh, there was a number of things. I think one of the things that I, I didn't realize, and in hindsight, I felt kind of silly for not, for not understanding this link, but I think a lot of people don't know about it. And that is that alcohol is a group one carcinogen. So that puts it in the same category as tobacco, uh, tobacco and asbestos in terms of the harm that it can do, um, the, the link to causing cancer. You know, one in five, um, cases of breast cancer in Australia are linked to alcohol. So that was just a real wake-up call for me. Um, and, and also, I think in the book, I talked to an addiction specialist who is uh, a neuroscientist and deals with the brain and the way that substances work on it. And I went to speak to him, because he'd been a contact of mine for many years as a journalist, and I went to speak to him about addiction and, and the people that he sees in his clinics. And it was halfway through talking to him that it became apparent that he was actually um, diagnosing me in a way, not not as an alcoholic, but what he was saying is he was asking about the way that I was drinking, which was just, I thought, a bog-standard binge drinker who used to go out with her friends at the weekend and, and get drunk. Um, and he described the way that I'd been drinking since I was basically a teenager growing up in Scotland as um, pre-malignant addiction. Now, that's a phrase that you never want to hear and a phrase that you'll never, I, I will never be able to forget. And what he meant by that was not that you're a full-blown alcoholic at this stage, but it was like this, this addiction, this pathology was growing. Um, and if I didn't make a change, that was probably the path I was going to end up on. So I often say about the way that we drink, you know, people want to ask, want to find out what my rock bottom moment was. And there really wasn't one. There was no catastrophic event um, that led me to say, oh, I need to change. It was a series of incremental red flags that for a while I chose to ignore. But 
if your house was on fire, you wouldn't wait till it burnt to the ground to call triple zero. And, and that's what was happening for me. There was a series of little spot fires. That that sense of premodent addiction that was slowly growing um, and realising that, yeah, I don't need to wait until I blow my life up before I make a change. And that's why I decided to, to give sobriety another crack. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, there is a myth that you have to hit that rock bottom until you you know, take steps toward change. And that's just not, yeah, it's just not true. And I think in the similar section of your book, when you were talking to that um, specialist, you also stated that, you know, there's a total cognitive dissonance between what I do and what I know, and that you can know it all, but it doesn't stop you from wanting it. And I guess going off that, what advice do you think you would give someone that wants to take those steps to explore sobriety? Yeah, I mean, I think we all have a, a, an inner voice, that intuitive kind of knowing that that tells us that um, the path we're on, whether it be a relationship or the way we drink or, or some sort of dysfunction in, in our life, we, we kind of know when things aren't quite the way they should be. And, and we, we, we often choose to ignore that voice and tell ourselves everything's okay. But I, I knew, um, as you say, there was a cognitive dissonance between what I was doing and intellectually understanding that this is this is not the best path for me. Um, and the same addiction specialist said to me, because I was very much of the belief that everyone around me was drinking in the same way. You know, I wasn't like I was drinking every day or drinking before lunchtime. Like I was just a social drinker who basically would never be able to stop at one or two. And I said, well, this is just normal. This is how everyone around me drinks. And he said, just because something has been normalized doesn't make it healthy. And, and that really st stayed with me because I think we have in our culture normalized um, binge drinking. And not, not, not everyone does that, but it is, it is still quite normalized. And it's the idea that drinking is not only socially um, accepted, but it's almost socially expected in many settings. Um, so, yeah, I, I think just... If you are thinking about making a change, I think you know on a, a very basic level inside you that um, it's time for a change. I certainly knew. Like, I just knew in every cell of my being that this was the right decision for me. And it's not always easy. You know, sobriety is, as much as um, the culture is shifting, we're, you're still swimming against the social tide to not drink. But the, the longer you do it, the more easy it becomes and the more fulfilling the reward though. Amazing. Thank you so much. I know that, you know, a lot of what you've shared today is really illuminating and, you know, I'm sure and the updated edition is wonderful. Um, could you let us know how we can purchase your book and share it around? Yeah, well, you can buy the book in most of any bookshop, really. There's signed copies in Melbourne, in uh, Dimmicks in the City, in Neighbourhood Books in Northgate, um, in Readings Carlton, um, Hill of Content uh, and Readings in the Porium. You can also follow me on Instagram. I'm just JillStuck underscore underscore. Um, and he, yeah, the book is is available on through the link in my web and my Instagram as well. But yeah, there should be hopefully plenty of copies on the shelf or online if you want to buy one. Amazing. Thank you so much. We'll definitely have a look out for that, and we'll put the information in our show notes. But hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thanks. 
You've just heard from Jill Stark, who is an award-winning journalist, author, and mental health advocate. And she spoke to us today about her updated edition of her book, High Sobriety. And she chatted to us about her struggle to become a moderate drinker, crippling anxiety, the pandemic, and the ever-evolving journey of self-discovery that sobriety has taken her on. Tell us what to do Then they push us around And then they have to go To go and rip off the ground Join 3CR from 9am to 4pm on Thursday the 26th of January for our annual Invasion Day broadcast. 3CR's First Nation presenters will be broadcasting live from the Stop the War Treaty Before Voice rally and march in Melbourne. We'll be bringing you black and deadly music, news and views from activists across the continent with grassroots politics that you won't find anywhere else as we discuss genocide, sovereignty, treaty, pay the rent, death in custody, truth and justice and the law of the land. So keep tuned to 3CR on Thursday the 26th of January 2023. Join us at midday on Friday the 20th of January for the Tanaminawai and Morbohina commemoration at the corner of Franklin Street and Victoria Street in Melbourne at the Tanaminawai and Morbohina Monument. It's a two-hour ceremony, begins at midday. The first hour is broadcast live on Community Radio 3CR. We have a bevy of interesting guest speakers At 1pm, we will walk silently to what we believe is their burial site in the Queen Victoria markets. I encourage you to bring your children and friends to commemorate the hanging of Tanaminuay and Melbourne for actively resisting the colonisation process. See you there. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 810 in the morning, and we are now joined by Nora Mansour, who's the Community Organizing and Advocacy Lead with the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, or APAN. And Nora joins us to talk about APAN's upcoming inaugural Palestine Solidarity Conference, which is going to be running next week from the 27th to the 29th of January. Nora, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you for having me, Tia. Good morning to you and your listeners. Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate it because um, I think it's so important that we talk about this this conference and the sort of discussions that are going to be happening there, but also how it can potentially set the agenda for Palestine solidarity, uh, you know, for the next year and for years to come. So I thought we might begin by discussing the current situation in occupied Palestine, because there's been an escalation of violence by the Israeli army, even in the first weeks of 2023, and this has occurred at the same time as there have been mass protests by Israelis this past weekend to demonstrate what they've described as an attack on the country's democracy in the form of significant judicial reform that has been proposed by the Netanyahu government. And um, Yara Hawari recently wrote an article for Al Jazeera writing about this sort of parallel between the ongoing violence against Palestinians 
uh, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, arguments that are put forward about restoring or reforming what is fundamentally an apartheid state. And these both, you know, work to keep this occupation intact. So could you speak to the importance of calling out this parallel directly in the fight for Palestinian liberation and how some of, you know, recent events have really brought this into stark relief? Yeah, that's a great question to begin with. I think um, it's important that we link those two topics that you just mentioned. So you you asked me about the current situation in Palestine and the protests in Israel. And to kind of sum it up, bottom line, the protests in Israel are to maintain the status quo, which is the current situation in Palestine. Um, so in Palestine, what we've got right now, as you mentioned, there's um, an escalation. But that is this is basically the uh, this has been the status quo since the inception of the Israeli state in 1948. Um, um, the, the Israeli state is in a current or in a, a continuous situation of escalating against the Palestinians. And as we see, as we progress, the Palestinian resistance movement also progress and advances. And therefore, there's always going to be, um, you know, sadly, because of the inherent nature of the Israeli occupation and because of the root causes that are always uh, um, um, uh, fundamentally go untackled by the international community and by Israelis who are protesting at the moment, we will always find ourselves in this situation where we have, where the Palestinian people will continue to pay the price of um, 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 the Jewish uh, supremacist uh, settler colonial project, that is the Zionist project. So currently in the West Bank, there, there's escalation, there's provocation by the Israeli army and the Israeli settlers, there's, uh, you know, continuous settler, settler violence, uh, settler, uh, settlement expansions, we have assassinations that are um, being carried out by the Israeli um, army against young Palestinians, um, but at the same time, if you look at the ground in Palestine, we see that also the Palestinians um, are um, an ongoing manifestation of sumud, uh, what we call in Arabic. And sumud means uh, steadfastness and resilience. So um, in the West Bank, that's, this is the case. We are fighting against apartheid in Gaza as well. Gaza has been under siege since 2006. Um, with this, you know, illegal, inhumane siege where the Israeli government decides and counts the number of calories and then decides what the Gazans should and should not be eating that day. Inside Israel in 1948, uh, you've got Palestinians living as second-class citizens and um, are fundamentally and systematically being discriminated against by over 60-plus laws, uh, including uh, right of return, including citizenship laws, including uh, land ownership and others. Uh, and then in the diaspora, which is the majority of the Palestinian, uh, where, where the majority of the Palestinian people reside. Um, it's been 75 years since um, the UN granted uh, or acknowledged the right of return for the Palestinian people. That's Resolution 194. Mm -hmm. 75 years. And we have still, we still have 6 million Palestinians living as refugees, unable to return back home. So this is the current situation for Palestinians in Palestine and outside of Palestine. Mm. Now, to tackle the other point that you mentioned, which is why are Israelis protesting and what is um, really the essence of these protests, um, it's, I just wanted to kind of highlight that this is not the first time that these kind of protests uh, take place in Israel. Um, this is definitely not a turning point. It's not a pivotal moment mm. for the Israeli um, public. Um, and it's not the first time that this happened. So back in uh, 2020, there were also mass protests about um, how basically the government was dealing with the um, coronavirus um, crisis. And then back in 2011, there was also even bigger protests 
um, where Israelis were protesting the cost of living amongst other um, internal affairs, basically. So having basically contextualized these protests in that context, uh, what is it then <laughs> that the Israelis are trying to achieve through these protests? So what we see right now is um, a panicky attempt by the Israeli public, but also the Israeli uh, ruling elite, the political elite, to maintain the status quo. And this is not a protest because they, you know, they really want democratic reforms because democratic reforms mean um, um, rejecting or deprioritizing or eliminating the uh, Jewish nature of the state. It means that this should be this should become a state for all of its citizens. Mm. But this is something that we know um, all Israeli parties, regardless to where they sit on the spectrum, uh, on the political spectrum, far right, center, um, uh, left. Um, all of them have rejected that notion of um, a state for all of its citizens. And they all support um, the, the, what the um, uh, nation-state um, bill. Mm-hmm. So this is, uh, in a nutshell, um, why basically Israelis are protesting. And the other thing that I should add at this stage as well is that why do they want to protect the status quo? Because um, the current, while the current political leadership um, is a little bit too extreme. <laughs> it's not um, not reflective of the Palesti- uh, of the um, Israeli public opinion. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, the fact that now we have Bitalel Smotrich uh, as a finance minister, who is a self-declared Jewish supremacist, fascist, and homophobe, mm-hmm. um, and the fact that we have Ben Gvir also, who is a Kahanist. Um, uh, you know, leading the internal, uh, the minister for internal security, actually puts the liberal Zionists in Israel, but also uh, liberal Zionists worldwide, in a very tough position in terms of advocating for a continuous support for the state of Israel. Mm. So this is also one of the reasons why Bibi or Benjamin Netanyahu lost the election, because he was getting too Trumpist in his policies. And then, um, um, you know, he got um, voted out, basically. So I think it's about what's happening is that, we, that you know, whether it's by Ben Gvir or um, someone from far right, quote unquote, the Israeli Zionist right, the Israeli public and elite, political elite, doesn't want the status quo to change. It just yeah. wants to maintain it and protect it. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, just just hearing you talk about this, I'm thinking about the parallels across so many settler colonial states, you know, us under the Morrison government, the United States under Trump, where uh, there is this sort of, uh, you know, the... The, the liberal status quo, uh, there's sort of a fear about, you know, uh, straying too far away from the liberal status quo, but that's still a settler colonial status quo. Um, and this need to sort of normalize and bring it back to a status quo that still has uh, first peoples under siege and under uh, apartheid conditions. Um, so uh, you mentioned the significance of uh you know, the 75, uh, 75th anniversary. Um, and this is also the 75th year of Nakba this year. And I was hoping that you might uh, reflect on what APAN hopes to build through your inaugural Palestine Solidarity Conference, which is going to be running next week, to progress the fight for Palestinian liberation here in so-called Australia. Yes, we are very excited about this event. 
for so many reasons, but let me uh, tell you a few. Um, so this is the inaugural Palestine Solidarity Conference that is being organized by um, uh, an amalgamation of uh, organizations and solidarity movements across the continent. Um, it's basically focused on two main things. First one is to um, center the Palestinian narrative and demands and non-negotiable. What is it exactly that the Palestinian people want and what are they fighting? So we want to kind of reframe and recenter the whole discussion and also our advocacy attempts and efforts so that they're focused on that. But then by the same token, we also want to contextualize our activism for Palestine in our local sociopolitical scene, right? So, you know, we are on stolen land. As Palestinians, we come from stolen land, and here we are also living on stolen land. So what does this duality mean for us? Uh, but not just for us, because this is not just an event for Palestinians. This is an event for all allies and anyone who feels strongly about social justice. So we, we, you know, we very often say that there's no justice on this land without justice for First Nation people. Mm. And then coming off, um, um, uh, you know, in, in lead up to Invasion Day, it's, it's, it's impossible to miss the parallels and how that these two cases of settler colonial uh, projects are almost identical, except that one of them happened 200 years ago, and one of them, one of them is more modern and mm-hmm. contemporary in its um, tools and its, uh, you know, and, and, and outcomes as well. So when we talk about Invasion Day, for instance, versus Nakba, we talk about the same logic, right, in terms of Terra Nullius and um, land with, with no people for people with no land. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the same argument that settler colonial um, used in, you know, uh, uh, 200 years ago, uh, same for them for, um, in the Palestinian context. We also, um, we see the logic of extermination and elimination being played out 200 years ago as well, whether that was physical elimination of the presence of the indigenous population here. Um, in, you know, 200 years ago, and an ongoing, in ongoing as well manifestation of that, um, as well as in Palestine through expulsion, but also targeting of the Palestinian people, assassination, um, genocidal policies, um, and, and, and um, you know, other manifestations of that in terms of targeting not just the land or the people, but also the culture. Mm-hmm. So it is important, so, uh, you know, for us, for anyone who wants to, um, advocate for justice, for self, self-determination, for uh, human rights values, that our activism and our work and our advocacy is also centered and, and grounded in um, justice for First Nation people. And in addition to other causes um, for social justice, such as, um, you know, environmental justice, uh, we talk about um, disability justice as well, um, and, and uh, other causes that share the same value. Yeah, absolutely. And I know um, a lot of people refer to, to Palestine and, and uh, people's position on Palestine as a bit of a litmus test about their, you know, commitment to, to human rights and their commitment to, you know, these fundamental questions about justice. Uh, and I think um, what you've spoken about in terms of this, uh, th- this co-resistance and the parallels between, um, you know, justice for First Nations people here in the lead up to Invasion Day um, and, you know, the, the struggle for Palestinian liberation is, is so important because um, I think there's also 
there's always a risk of being too insular with um, with politics of allyship um, mm-hmm. and being, you know, selective, picking and choosing, um, you know, what you what you want to support rather than recognizing that, you know, systems of settler colonial dominance um, are maintained through so many international networks of whether this is through uh, government treaties, uh, through mutual agreements, through arms trading, through uh, resource extraction. Um, there's so many different ways that these things are resisted. Uh, uh, sorry, that these things are connected, that resistance also has to be uh, attentive to these things as well. Uh, so I'm also wondering uh, if you can tell us a bit about some of the sessions that are going to be on offer at the conference and what you're most looking forward to attending. Oh, that's a really hard one. What I'm, <laughs> I wish I can uh, like call myself and attend all of these sessions. <laughs> to be honest, um, but we've got exciting sessions. We've got up to six panel discussions um, that include um, Palestinian speakers and allies and First Nation people as well. Um, so we are um, extremely excited about the topics. For instance, we have the opening panel that will focus on organizing on stolen land or organizing for Palestine on stolen land. And what does that mean in terms of intersectionality and solidarity? And then we have a panel on the Palestinian narrative, centering the Palestinian narrative. What do Palestinians on the ground want? Uh, what are the demands and non-negotiables? And then we have, we're also zooming in speakers from Palestine, um, uh, from other parts of the world, of the world, from the UK and the US talk about other movements. Uh, we've got a panel um, dedicated to the BDS, and we've got a panel dedicated to the history and the background and uh, lessons learned from the movement in Australia. And then we're ending with the Nakba panel that is focused on the way forward for the mm. movement in Australia. So these are six uh, panel discussions, and these are also, we do have the online streaming option for these. Uh, but, but also more exciting, and we're unable to stream, obviously, all of these workshops and sessions that are happening concurrently at the same time. We have up to 20, um, 25 workshops that are more of an in-depth discussion focused on a specific topic, such as intersectionality, um, you know, um, parallels, commonalities between the Palestinian cause and First Nation people. We've got environmental justice, and we've got also speakers uh, zooming in um, as well to talk about food justice in Palestine. Uh, we've got um, a session about understanding Palestinian politics. We've got um, how to build global movements and when do global movements succeed. Um, uh, we've got we've got heaps. And, if, you know, I wish I had all the time to go over the program. But if you would like to have a good look at the program, you all you need to do is go to the APAN website, APAN.org.au, and there you, you'll find a detailed um, description, basically, of the program that we have put so far. Um, we've got also um, 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 uh, just one, maybe a couple of sessions that I want to mention: uh, art and activism. That we'll talk about Palestinian arts and the role, artists and the role of art in terms of pushing um, the boundaries and creating new reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got Irish-Palestinian solidarity as well. So. Uh, we're really excited and we look forward to seeing everyone in this uh, fantastic event. Yeah, it's really, really exciting. And um, I'm looking forward to attending some of the sessions myself. And I think it's really great that there's going to be um, uh, the option to attend online and in person so that, you know, if people aren't able to make it there, uh, they'll still be able to to capture some of this uh, this incredible conference. So, look, Nora, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. And I'll put that information about how to register for the conference and find out more about the program in our show notes. But thank you so much. No worries. Thank you, Priya. And I look forward to seeing you there. Wonderful. All right. Goodbye.
Um, that was Nura Mansour, Community Organizing and Advocacy Lead with Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, or APAN. And Nura joined us to talk about APAN's upcoming Palestine Solidarity Conference, which is going to be running from the 27th to the 29th of January. And just a reminder, you can find out more and register to attend at apan.org.au forward slash PSC. And for more coverage on Palestine on 3CR, again, don't forget that you can always catch the Palestine Remembered show on Saturdays from 9.30 to 10 a.m. We're coming up to time on the show. Inez, do you want to take us through the interviews that you did today? Absolutely. So firstly, we heard from Chris Gough, who is the executive director of the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimization and Advocacy, or CAMA. And he joins us today for an update um, of Australia's first ever fixed drug checking service that launched in July 2022. And we chatted about what we learned from delivering this service so far, you know, people who use drugs and their behavior and what we can learn from drug law reform. And following that up, we heard from Jill Stark, who's an award-winning journalist, author, and mental health advocate. And she currently made an updated edition of her book, High Sobriety, and she joined us today to speak about her struggle to become a moderate drinker, crippling anxiety that led her to quit alcohol for good, the pandemic, and the ever-evolving journey of self-discovery sobriety has taken her on. Yeah, really, really wonderful and interesting interviews. Um, and, of course, finally, we're joined by Nura Mansour from the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. Um, really encourage people to register for the conference and to attend if they can. It is going to be running from the 27th to the 29th of January. So even if you might not, uh, you might have work commitments, you might not be able to attend for the first day. The 28th and the 29th are on the weekend. So hopefully folks will have some time to, to either drop in in person I believe it's at Trades Hall if it's in person uh, or to register to attend online. So um, I think that's all we've got time for today. This has been an excellent first show back. You know, we're crushing it as usual. Absolutely. Uh, bringing you current affairs, news, views, radical perspectives. Um, and we'll be back with more of the same for next week's Invasion Day broadcast. So stay tuned to that um, and make sure that you also attend the Tanner Minnerweight and Mulboy Heener um, Memorial commemoration tomorrow if you can um Ines anything else you want to add no I just hope you have a lovely week and thank you so much for spending your time with us this morning bye 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the new international bookshop Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program you can find nibs in the basement of trades hall in Victoria Street Carlton and while you're there check out radical coffee a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.